Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Interior Department, like many other agencies, is scaling up in-person requirements for employees, this on the request of the Biden administration. House Republicans remained unsatisfied, though. They say telework is to blame for worsening agency services to the public. They're calling for a return to pre-pandemic office arrangements. Mark Green, Interior's chief human capital officer, defended the department's stance on telework at a House committee hearing last week. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman reports. Congress members' continuous investigations into federal telework policy do not seem to be going away anytime soon. The Interior Department is only the latest to gain attention from members of Congress over its return to office plans. Despite some upcoming adjustments to Interior's telework policies, agency officials say telework has to remain an option. We believe the hybrid workforce uh, model that we're operating in now is one that works for the department. For the department to remain competitive for the talent we need in the future, especially in mission support occupations, we believe it's essential that we continue to offer workplace uh, flexibility such as telework and remote work. Mark Green is chief human capital officer at the Department of Interior. He says offering telework and remote work options supports recruitment and retention at the agency, as well as satisfaction and engagement of employees. But several Republican committee members pressed harder on Interior's telework posture. They say it's leading to performance issues and preventing the agency from fully meeting the public's needs. Telework and remote work can be useful in limited and well-defined circumstances. However, DOI has abused their excessive telework and remote work policies. That's Arizona Republican Paul Gosar. He blamed telework, for instance, on what he said was a massive backlog of projects at the National Park Service. That's one component of the Interior Department. Green, on the other hand, pushed back. He says telework has done the opposite. It's resulted in increased performance in many areas of the department. Uh, We're not seeing any individual employee uh, performance issues. And then again, uh, as we evaluate the department on our performance as a whole, we look at our strategic plan and we're actually seeing increases there. And we're actually seeing uh, better results on our federal employee viewpoint survey uh, around employee engagement, how connected they feel to the mission of the agency, how they could feel connected to each other. And federal employees' satisfaction in their jobs has broader impacts too, says Representative Melanie Stansbury, Democrat from New Mexico. Workplace satisfaction is not just a matter of people being happy in their jobs, but it's it's a matter of national security. It's an, a matter of the federal government being able to carry out its mission. And it's a, a the ability to actually serve the public in all of the different things that the department does. Agency officials also say that telework is a major recruitment benefit for many different components of the Interior Department, the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and many more. Don Locke, Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office, says since offering telework, Interior's pools of applicants have broadened and they have better skill sets to choose from among their job applicants. With that being said, they also acknowledged that while recruitment and retention had improved, that not every position was suitable for telework because they had to be in person. But they said even if they offered one day a pay period to telework, when when those individuals who normally have to be in person just had to do administrative stuff behind the computer, that was beneficial to them. Given the nature of the department's work, Interior has relatively limited options for telework. Less than half of Interior's workforce is eligible for telework to begin with. 
Many employees are in public-facing positions, working on public lands, in recreation areas, in parks and wildlife refuges, all of which require consistently on-site work. Overall, 65% of Interior's employees nationwide are currently working in person every day. But similar to many large federal departments, Interior's approach to telework is not one-size-fits-all. For instance, at one component of the department, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, about 80% of the staff works entirely in person. Department employees who can telework, on the other hand, are in jobs like information technology, human resources, and acquisition and financial management. Green says those employees are in very high demand in both the public and private sectors. That means that in those job fields, offering telework is important to be able to retain staff, Green says, competing against other potential employers. Even so, those eligible for telework at the Department of Interior will soon see their options become more limited. For feds working in the D.C. area, Interior says that many of its employees will soon have to be in person more frequently. Starting February 11th, those employees will have to work in the office or on site at least half of their work hours. The upcoming change is just a few months after senior executives, managers, and supervisors at the department also began working in the office about 50% of the time. Green says it'll be a significant adjustment overall for the department's employees. Taking these steps will ensure that over 70% of the employees in the national capital region will be working in person at greater rates. More broadly for agencies, the Government Accountability Office has said telework is an important tool for the federal workforce. But in the same breath, GAO is cautioning that telework has to be implemented appropriately to be able to work well. There are a few potential challenges with telework, like managing office space and dealing with limitations in technology. But GAO official Don Locke says that there are ways to manage those challenges. What I want to make very clear regarding these challenges is that they could be mitigated if agencies followed key practices that provide a roadmap for successfully implementing telework programs. Those key practices, as Locke describes them, can mean a lot of different things like having a dedicated telework office to provide oversight, ensuring appropriate technology for those working from home, and having evaluation plans in place to make course corrections where needed. GAO has said telework for agencies can also support reduction of office space and provide cost savings. It can also improve recruitment and retention and offer opportunities to better balance work and family demands for employees. GAO as an agency itself has maintained a flexible telework policy, and Locke told Congresswoman Stansbury there were many benefits as a result. We assess the suitability of each position at GAO to determine if those positions could telework, and so those that were suitable for telework, uh, they have no impact on our performance. And in fact, in 2023, we um, exceeded our savings by $20 billion in a telework status which is another reason, of course, both the private and the public sector are seeking to um, increase opportunities for telework. It's not just that flexibility for employees, but it saves money for employers as well. Despite many agency officials like Locke and Green who are trying to emphasize the importance of federal telework, House Republicans continue to double down and push agencies for a return to office. During last week's hearing, Congressman Paul Gosar called for the enactment of the Show Up Act. It's a Republican-led bill that cleared the House in early 2023 and has been introduced in the Senate. If enacted, the Show Up Act would return the federal workforce to pre-pandemic work arrangements and largely reduce telework opportunities for employees. 
House Republicans like Gosar say they'll continue to push on agencies to make those changes. It is time for the DOI to return to more appropriate pre-pandemic levels of telework and remote work so that staff will have more and establish a stronger workplace culture for working in person. House Republicans have put forth a solution to the in-person absenteeism of federal employees. The Show Up Act, which would return federal agencies to pre-pandemic levels of telework and require federal agencies to submit studies to Congress detailing how increased telework levels during the pandemic impacted their missions. I urge the Senate to take up this legislation so we can get back to business here in D.C. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.